Hey guys, this is Casey from Tracor Clan, the Mandalorian Mercs of Michigan, and you're listening to the Jedi Temple Archives podcast. If you loved the Mandalorian and are looking to make your own Mando, come find us at www.facebook.com backslash Michigan Mercs, and we will show you the way. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Red 5 Network. For more Red 5 Network podcasts, visit red5network.com. There is more knowledge here than anywhere else in the galaxy. Only members of the Jedi Council are allowed access. Guarding the holocrons is one of the most important duties a Jedi can be given. Do you think you're up to the task? fans welcome to the first episode of the jta podcast post clone wars and uh tom i think it is safe to say that uh clone wars is truly over this time there will be no saving it from uh from the purgatory it's been been sent to <laughs> sorry I'm, I'm just shedding a little tear for the end of the clone <laughs> wars again we've had to go through this a second time now where uh, but this time, yes, I believe it's finally ended for good. And uh, wow, what an ending. And by the way, Rob, thanks again for having me on the Jedi Temple Archives podcast. Well, you and I uh, would be doing this anyway. So it makes total sense that we just do it, record it, and we'll uh, call it a podcast episode. Uh, I know we really haven't had a ton of uh, opportunity to talk about a lot of the previous episodes. Um, we did have the discussion a couple weeks ago with uh, the gentleman from the Scarif podcast, uh, Brad and Roe, and talked a little bit about what we were thinking we were going to see in those last two episodes. Uh, and again, it was great having the guys from Scarif on. Unfortunately, Alex couldn't join us. But uh, now that we have reached the end of the road, I mean, uh, when they said Clone Wars saved, I didn't realize what they were saying. In fact, was that they were saving the very best of Clone Wars for that last four episode arc. Wow, uh, completely. It, it, you know, even from, and they knew, you could tell right from the beginning of the first episode of that four episode arc that they knew this was going to be something special. The fact that they, they introed it completely different, different logo. And they did that each and every episode from there on out, something slightly different to lead you into the show. They knew that this was going to stand apart from the rest of the clone wars, which on its own was a spectacular series, but this four episode arc, um, just simply wow. Yeah, to me, it it seemed very apparent that this is really where they focus their time and attention. And uh, clearly, Dave Filoni, uh, the the creator and and kind of lead executive of the Clone Wars series, uh, and and 
you and I were just talking offline before the show about, you know, the the series that they've been doing on Disney Plus, the the gallery series that has been doing some of the roundtables with John Favreau uh, and some of the directors of the various Mandal- uh, Mandalorian episodes. Uh, they were talking uh, in this most recent episode kind of about uh, George Lucas and his vision. And, and Filoni clearly has got some amazing insight into that. Um, you know, he, he made a lot of comments that tied into this article arc uh, with regards to uh, the Phantom Menace and the Duel of the Fates really being about, you know, seeing if Qui-Gon was going to uh, survive and basically have a chance to train Anakin. Um, and if you want to to hear more about that type of, uh, you know, topic, you can definitely go check out the Scarif podcast episode that just dropped earlier uh, this week where they talk about what would have happened had Qui-Gon lived. Uh, but you know, it's it's a really interesting topic and it plays a lot into what we see here because this whole arc is really about the final fall of Anakin as well as, you know, seeing what occurs with his Padawan Ahsoka and what uh, what she is able to do to kind of save herself from the Jedi purge, even though she's not a Jedi herself. Yeah, it's such a, a fascinating arc. Again, it's 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 Revenge of the Sith only from a certain point of view, a different <laughs> point of view uh, from a different part of the galaxy. Uh, the it, It's running completely parallel to a lot of the stuff that's happening within that film. Uh, yeah, you can see it, it, it's, it's an insight one on obviously what happened with the Sokotano with Captain Rex, etc. But it's also on an insight into what happened in some of the, the area because you know there were Jedi spread across the galaxy. Uh, what happened to some of those that you didn't see uh, their demise take place within the film itself? Uh, fascinating. Um, I loved every single second of it, uh, even though you basically know the outcome. It was gripping throughout, uh, and uh, that's just great storytelling by uh, Filoni and the rest of the crew. Yeah, I completely agree. And and what's interesting about this arc is that, uh, you know, I know that you and I had both read the Ahsoka novel that had come out back in 2016. It was written by E.K. Johnston. And uh, at the time, it was really the only place where we got insight into the Siege of Mandalore. And it was really through some flashbacks that Ahsoka had. She had already kind of gone into hiding uh, post the rise of the Galactic Empire. And, you know, through her flashbacks, we're able to discern a few things that um, kind of uh, as a byproduct of this arc kind of get uh, taken out of canon. So, you know, there's a question about how much of that book is still canon uh, or is it just kind of a a side work that's considered a legends novel at this point. But uh, the items that that are specifically discussed first and foremost in that book, her lightsabers are still green. And we know from this arc that Anakin had uh, made a few slight modifications himself to her lightsabers before giving them back. And they were both blue bladed. That's not, to me, like a major issue. Uh, but what was more interesting to me was the fact that uh, within the book, uh, Ahsoka was actually in the process. They had just captured Maul uh, the, in a fight that took place kind of in a, in one of the main squares of, of uh, the, the planet of Mandalore. And they had captured him in a ray shield, and that was basically the moment when Order 66 was put into play. So they were not on the Venator uh, Star Destroyer on their way back to Coruscant. Um, and as a byproduct of, of the way that it fell out in the book, uh, you know, she basically ended up 
saving Rex as opposed to uh, capturing Maul and uh, and buried him in a grave and made it look like she had killed Rex, but Rex had killed her. She left both of her lightsabers behind before she went into hiding. And it, again, it's different from what we see in this arc. Clearly, they they start their way back to Coruscant before things go down. Um, Rex is actually taking part in Order 66, although I would definitely say he's one of the few that tried to resist it. The time has come. Execute Order 66. Yes, Lord Sidious. No. I'll do it. Rex, what's happening? Stay back! Find him. Find him. Fight him! Fight! Yeah, well, obviously, and uh, if you've watched this uh, right there, you could tell he's fighting it as hard as he can, just enough. He gets out just enough information uh, right before he fires a shot at her uh, to kind of put her in the direction, put her on the path to kind of figure out what's going on. But he still could not fight up against that, that chip that was implanted within his head, at least not to begin with. Yeah, and I definitely think that's one of the things that fans of the the Rebel series who know that uh, Rex was one of the one of the clone commandos that had kind of lived past uh, Order sixty six and had their clone uh, that that implant in their brain removed. Um, what's interesting about that is there were also two others. There was a uh, Wolf and Gregor, who were two of his other clone commandos uh, that also had had their chips removed. I was interested to see if we were going to get any of that story within this arc. Uh, and we did not, but we certainly got the answer for when and how Rex got his chip removed. Uh, and it was cool to see that, you know, Ahsoka, especially with the friendship and kind of love that they had for each other, which was so evident in that scene on the bridge right before Order 66 got issued. Something on your mind? As a Jedi, we were trained to be keepers of the peace. Not soldiers, but all I've been since I was a Padawan is a soldier. Well, I've known no other way. It gives us clones all a mixed feeling about the war. Many people wish it never happened, but without it, we clones wouldn't exist. Well, then perhaps some good has come from all of it. The Republic couldn't have asked for better soldiers, nor I a better friend. She clearly was going to try to save him as opposed to kill him. And and she did the same for all the other clone troopers that they were up against as they tried to escape. Uh, it's one of the fascinating things about Ahsoka Tano, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to put it into not only for the clones there, but you've got to also remember the droids that, that were there that kind of uh, helped them along the path. And if you've gone back and watched some of the episodes of the Clone Wars uh, before getting into this final season, uh, you realize uh, not only she, but also Anakin and Obi-Wan for the most part, uh, we've talked about this many times, they were really in touch with a lot of the clones. They didn't see them as just soldiers, just like a different version of battle droids essentially they actually saw them for the individuals they were and also within it you see that ahsoka treats many of the droids as individuals 
as well. And I think it came back to play within this, uh, this show. Uh, first, when she makes her reappearance there uh, with Anakin and Obi-Wan, you see R2 come up immediately to her, just so excited to see her. Uh, obviously, there was an attachment there. But then also, you know, rallying these droids to help them on their cause, to be able to save Rex, to be able to help them get off the ship. Uh, it, it's all this stuff that's put into play that Ahsoka Tano has done throughout the Clone Wars. It's one of the things that makes her such an amazing character. Yeah, undoubtedly. And uh, by the same token, one of the one of the interesting things about kind of how especially the last two episodes played out was that, as you mentioned earlier, they did a good job of kind of weaving this into the timeline of uh, Revenge of the Sith. And you're seeing things from a slightly different perspective and you're starting to see that, you know, for instance, they have the uh, I think it's uh, episode 11 when the Siege of Mandalore uh, is just kind of ending and, and they've captured Maul and there's that. Uh, conference that the Jedi are having where Mace Windu is talking about the fact that, um, you know, that he senses a plot to destroy the Jedi and Yoda is talking about needing to take caution. And that is something we see within the film, but that is where the conversation in the film ends. And then we get to see the fact that then Ahsoka walks into the room and, uh, ends up addressing the council as a citizen, not as a Jedi. Uh, and you kind of get that filling in the gaps of things that we had seen in the film, but it just hadn't taken it quite to that point. Yeah, that's that was what was great about this is that there were so many different portions of and again, this is about the Clone Wars themselves because the Clone Wars has done this so well throughout the series of filling in so many of the gaps that we missed from the prequels. And yeah, that was the one scene. Another scene earlier on uh, it was the episode or two episodes before that when uh, she's talking with the uh, the holographic image of Obi-Wan and Obi-Wan mentions to her, hey, you know, uh, we probably should uh, speak to Anakin. You know, the council has put him in a position where he needs to go and kind of spy on the chancellor and obi-wan says look the council doesn't always get it right and you know for many for much of the time i kind of felt obi-wan was okay you know i'm not sure if this is the best thing for anakin but if the council says so then we got to do this so i'm going to speak for the council but it's obviously he had some doubts as well so uh, just it just adds so much more depth again to the the prequels that really makes it so much more fulfilling. Yeah. And I'm glad that you were talking a little bit about that because, uh, there are things that were said in some of those, uh, meetings between Ahsoka and, and Obi-Wan and certainly the meeting with the council, but there were also things that weren't said. And those were the interesting parts for me because, uh, at that point, you know, she'd already confronted Maul. Uh, Maul had basically not only asked her to join him so that they could take on Sidious and overthrow him, but he had also let her know that Sky Skywalker was the one who was being groomed by Sidious to be his Sith apprentice. And of course, Ahsoka thinks he's lying, but that is a major piece of information. And she had an opportunity during that conversation with the Jedi Council to bring that up, and she chose not to. And she also had an opportunity just after that when she was, uh, you know, Mace Windu had left, you know, said, this is Jedi business citizen. And I know that rubbed a lot of people wrong, but I don't, I don't personally uh, take any offense uh, to Mace Windu doing that. He was just basically saying, look, you want to classify yourself as a citizen, that's fine. There's going to be certain things that you're not going to be privy to. Um, but with regards to Yoda then asking if she had a message for, for young Skywalker and she chose to not leave a message, 
that was, you know, she didn't know it at the time, but that was really her last opportunity to try and reach Anakin, uh, to let him know that, you know, she was there to support him and, uh, you know, not doing that could have certainly had major implications. Uh, it, it's a fun what if game to play, I guess, to say, had she let the council know that, look, Anakin is who Palpatine has been uh, grooming to be his apprentice and Anakin, uh, you know, is definitely going to need some support. Uh, without saying that, they were not operating with a full deck of cards, I guess. Yeah, there are so many what ifs into Anakin's fall. You know, we you discussed it just a little bit earlier, Gary, and we were talking about it a little off air. Uh, when you're talking about what if Qui Gon Jinn had uh, trained him, had stayed alive, and been able to train him instead of Obi Wan Kenobi, how would that have changed things? And I think we both have our own opinions on that that maybe we'll share at some other point on some other episode. Uh, but we also uh, you know, what happens with Ahsoka? One, if she doesn't leave the Jedi Order to begin with. Two, if she ha had been able to stay with him during this time or had reconnected with him further, or if he hadn't been pulled away right at that same time uh, by Darth Sidious, by the Chancellor being captured, uh, what would have happened in those situations? There are so many what-ifs, and uh, it's just, it, I love Star Wars discussion, and these episodes and 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 these films uh, really lead into that, and it really is fun, because we don't, we, there's no way we can absolutely ever know these things, but it doesn't mean we can't have fun opinions on them and delve deeply into them the key word being fun right uh <laughs> sometimes yeah sometimes people get a little bit uh too adamant that they know the the reason behind things and uh that tends to be when some of these conversations go sideways as uh as you always say you know it's all all depends on your point of view and everyone's coming from a different place and reads different things into these storylines and again it's always fun to have the conversation best to keep them civil and uh that's one of the things that i'm really happy that we're able to do on this show um and that's really what i would hope for the star community as a whole you know there's a it's it's a made-up world so uh, i know that's going to come as a surprise to some people but uh <laughs> i know i know and when i said some people i was talking about you and i but uh you know i i think that there's a lot uh, a lot of fun that can be had and a lot of uh interesting conversations that can be had and certainly these last four episodes left us no shortage of that um we did get to see some things within these episodes that were uh, kind of uh, new pieces of Star Wars lore. Uh, the first being the device that they used to contain Maul uh, to send him back to Coruscant, which kind of, uh, you know, when, when that came on screen, my wife looked at me and said, is he in Carbonite? And and I could understand why she would have thought that because it definitely looked that way, but it was certainly more ornate than that. I, I, uh, I had never seen a device like that. I don't know what it's called. I haven't seen anything online about what the official name for it is. But, you know, the the description from Bo-Katan uh, to Ahsoka about, you know, when, when we needed a way to constrain you maniacs uh, was appropriate. And, and it definitely seemed like it was... Um, Boy, I don't even know how to describe it. I mean, I can't imagine them having like a warehouse full of those, which is basically what she alluded to was that uh, this was the last one. All the rest had been destroyed, um, but it was certainly an interesting device and I would love to know more about that. 
Yeah, well, as we know from the, the Mandalorian armor, a lot of it was developed uh, actually to battle the Jedi to be able to, uh, you know, to keep Mandalore being Mandalore and not let the Jedi kind of rule over them. And any not that the Jedi were necessarily looking to rule, but you know what I mean. So they could uh, stand up and fight uh, on a, a level playing ground with the Jedi. And so it would kind of make sense in that regard that they would also have something for when they captured the Jedi that were, you know, knowing that they have all of these, you know, basic superpowers essentially uh that that could be kind of contained in some regard but yeah bo-katan mentions and i think ahsoka mentions it as well that uh you know when her sister satine had taken over duchess satine had taken over uh they she was going for more of a a a peaceful government a, a, and uh basically kind of did away with most of those but apparently there was still one in existence and uh, came into play obviously to kind of contain maul in this situation yeah, uh, and certainly knowing what Maul was capable of, I could understand why Bo-Katan would, uh, would keep one in the hopper just in case. Uh, the other thing that I thought was super interesting about that device is there were a couple of details about it that, that jumped out at me. The first was that um, they uh, kind of lower on the front, uh, there was a Mandalorian wielding some sort of a, a saber. Uh, it definitely looked like the dark saber to me, and, and there's been discussion that that could very well be Pre Vizsla, who was the Jedi, uh, the only Mandalorian or the first Mandalorian to become a Jedi who had created that dark saber, uh, which is a device that has now uh, been seen both in the Clone Wars and Rebels, as well as within the Mandalorian at the end of uh, this past season. So that is, uh, it's going to be interesting to get more information about that in season two, which I hope is forthcoming. Um, but that was kind of a, a cool little detail on the front of that device. Yeah, I didn't pick that out. I know you picked out a lot of detail out of that. I I was just so uh, caught back yeah. by the entire episode or episode arc that I didn't really uh, study uh, the detail work, although it, uh, the artwork throughout this whole arc was uh, amazing. I mean, especially you look at that final scene, it's just it's spectacular. Uh, but yeah, the detail work that was put into that. And I know you put some right out there on social media afterwards. And I was like, wow, I didn't see that. Uh, so, uh, really, really fascinating stuff for sure. Yeah. I think you're probably referring to one of the things that jumped out of the other, the second thing that jumped out at me when I saw it and I don't know what it was about it, but, uh, the configuration of the Mandalorian helmets on the front of that casket for back, uh, lack of a better word, uh, to me, looked exactly like Yoda's face when he was meditating. Uh, so if you look at a photo or, of any of the animated uh, Yodas when he is in meditation with his eyes closed, um, you know, there is definitely a pattern on the front of that device that looks very much like Yoda's face. And I don't know if that was just a little Easter egg that got thrown in there by the designers um, and the artists when they were putting together the episode or if it was just pure happenstance. I haven't seen a whole lot about it, but uh, I just thought that was, uh, was kind of cool to see see that, you know, for the time that, that Maul was imprisoned in there, it was like uh, Yoda was basically holding back the darkness through his meditation. Yeah. Like I said, when you pointed that out, I was like, wow, how did I not see that? It's fascinating. And just little tidbits like that. And, you know, I've always enjoyed the animation throughout the Clone Wars. It wasn't through for everybody. Not everybody liked that animation style. I've enjoyed it all. And it only got better as the series progressed. But especially when you've taken the years off in between and moved into these episodes, it's just amazing what they did. And again, um, it, you know, the, the artwork throughout several of these, I, the, the, 
the scene where Maul and Ahsoka are kind of squaring off and they're trying to decide, you know, she's trying to decide, does she join with him? He's trying to lure her in. And just before the battle and the glass shatters is one of the most, I just, I literally let out a wow when that happened because out loud, because it was such an amazing piece of animation. I thought it was just a spectacular uh visionary experience yeah uh there were a number of things about uh, especially with that battle between ahsoka and maul and the fact that it then proceeded into kind of the the upper uh layers of of the city uh, the main city there on mandalore um whereas again in the book they were fighting kind of down in the square well now they've taken this up where they are kind of above all the other combatants. And there was a lot of uh, symbolism to that, I think, as well as the fact that, you know, that battle comes down to something that we've seen before. If you watch Rebels, and that is the fact that even without a lightsaber in her hand, Ahsoka seals the deal that she is the most uh, most dangerous unarmed combatant in all of the Jedi uh, because she was able to basically unarmed against Maul disarm him and win that win that fight well she learned from anakin who was always losing his lightsaber so she <laughs> right. know how to fight without a lightsaber correct uh no, it was a spectacular scene again the, the the way they decided to do that visually where they did some mocap uh work um you know it was it was an amazing it was one of the i, I and i i think i texted you immediately afterwards like yeah that be one of the top three or four uh, lightsaber duels of all time. It was spectacular from uh, start to finish, and yes, even the finish uh, without a lightsaber. Uh, you know, and we and you, you mentioned the Ahsoka novel uh, before as well. She had to do some fighting within that uh, without lightsabers as well. Uh, I, I I have to agree with you, and um, I, I'm sure that some other things will come up about Ahsoka that we texted to one another afterwards. But um, she is such a spectacular character. That's all I'm going to say. She's spectacular. Right. Uh, and, you know, kind of moving on from there, uh, the fact that, you know, she definitely has a, an interesting relation with Bo-Katan, I would say, in the sense that, you know, they had clearly uh, met before and and been adversarial at that point. But by this point, uh, their interests have kind of aligned. And we know that, that they're going to meet up again when we get into Star Wars Rebels. Um, but Bo-Katan, uh, is an interesting character just in the sense that she was the one who was kind of the de facto leader of Mandalore at the time that, uh, the Clone Wars was wrapping up. And when you look at her history and her actions as part of Death Watch, she committed a lot of, uh, what probably would be considered war crimes. Um, and granted there are war, uh, kind of more of a warlike people in this pacifist period of time in their history was relatively short-lived. But, uh, you know, just kind of interesting to see the character arc that Bo-Katan uh, followed from when we first see her in Clone Wars to where she is left off at the end of season seven. She's not her sister. She's not willing to embrace that pacifist lifestyle, but she is certainly uh, someone who's kind of had their darker impulses curbed a little bit. Right. I mean, she even says it almost with a little regret uh, when she's kind of saying uh, goodbye to Ahsoka as Ahsoka's leaving. You know, I've all I, I wish I'd known anything besides war. Uh, I'm paraphrasing there, but essentially that was basically her life was war. And um, this new what she perceives this new era is going to go into is going to be something completely different than that. So, uh, yeah, again, another 
well-defined character. I would love to see more about her as well. I mean, I know you get a little glimpse of her more in Star Wars Rebels as well, but uh, I find her another fascinating character. And, you know, obviously she was uh, gripped by, you know, Mandalore. She'd be run by Mandalorians. We are a warrior race. This is what we should be. But, you know, she's obviously seeing that while she didn't completely agree with her sister and her ways, that maybe some of the things that she had going for her, you know, aren't completely something they should stray away for as, as a system, as a people. Right. Uh, the other interesting thing I, I found with, uh, with Ahsoka specifically was the whole scene where she basically saves Maul from being executed when order 66, uh, gets initialized and are initiated. And, you know, the fact that when she frees him, he assumes that she's freeing him so that they can team up and he wants her to follow his lead. And she's like, I'm not here to save you. I'm not here to join you. You don't understand. I'm not here to team up with you. I need a diversion and you're it. Now get going. What you do best, cause chaos. And that's exactly what he did. Right. So that was interesting to see that, you know, that that is kind of a colder side to her personality, a little bit more of a practical side uh, when he had come very close to kind of convincing her to join him uh, during the duel there on the planet of Mandalore. And it was really only his claims about Anakin uh, that caused her to take a step back because she thought he was just lying. But, uh, you know, that, you know, she was she was willing to. Uh, free into the galaxy, someone who was very dangerous. And I'm sure she thought that the odds, especially without giving him a weapon uh, of him surviving, were going to be pretty low against uh, a number of clones on that Venator Star Destroyer. But uh, again, she she also knew not to underestimate him. Even Anakin had warned her of that, and Obi-Wan as well. So uh, it was a risky move and, and potentially a cause of uh, you know future deaths to innocence if he were to escape. Yeah, interesting. Uh, you know, bottom line is that uh, she wanted him to uh, cause chaos. Essentially, you know, rally the the uh, clones to uh, go after him, uh, so she could achieve her goal of trying to uh, save, find out what's going on, save Rex, and get out of the ship herself. And it, that did happen. Uh, at the same time, as she's trying to get off the ship with Rex, uh, that ended up causing chaos enough that actually it was Maul who was able to get the ship and escape from uh, from the Star Destroyer himself. So, uh, you know, it, it kind of was a turnabout play there near the end of the episode. Yeah, I, I did take a little exception to the fact that there was only one gunship available on that entire uh, destroyer. That was it was a little bit ridiculous, but uh, it was kind of uh, kind of cool to see kind of the the Z ninety five headhunters, the predecessor to the X wing, kind of sliding around the deck, um, and certainly the Y wing that Rex was able to use to um, to save both himself and ultimately Ahsoka, who apparently uh, one of her specialties is is throwing herself out of ships at high altitude uh, and living to tell about it. Well, I mean, again, learned it from Anakin. Anakin did that many times as well. So why wouldn't she have that skill within her repertoire? Yeah, it was very much a callback to the very first episode of the Clone Wars, the Clone Wars movie, when uh, when they kind of had to race you to the surface uh, <laughs> scenario between the two of them. So they, uh, uh, they, they love playing the way, that game. The very first scene of this um, from from this arc was a throwback right to the actual the Clone Wars movie because uh, it was it was almost shot for shot, you know, very similar in regards to, but you could see how much the characters had developed over that amount of time. Uh, by the way, how Obi-Wan 
uh, and acted within that scene, how Anakin acted uh, within that scene. It was, it, I, I found that fascinating as well, going back and just uh, kind of checking out the, the Clone Wars movie, which um, really the only part of that movie, which was worth watching was that first <laughs> portion of it. Then you get to the other thing with, with Zero and all that. And it's yeah. like, okay, um, yeah, this would have been good within the series itself, but as a standalone movie, yeah. I see why it panned, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, which is why I got to believe they're going to bookend this and, and make this last uh, four episode arc. I could see them putting that together as as one, uh, you know, kind of feature length film. Um, it's likely going to just be on Disney Plus, but uh, it was certainly set up to be able to do that pretty easily. Um, but I, I'm assuming you're referring to the scene where Ahsoka first arrives as Anakin's Padawan um, within that Clone Wars film. Yeah doing kind of a battle with between the clones and uh, the battle droids. It yeah. looks very similar in many regards to uh, what you see at the very first scene uh, within the that arc of the Clone Wars where uh, kind of uh, Obi-Wan's pinned down there with some clones and then Anakin comes in with Rex and, and, and some of uh, the other, uh, the final first. And, and I just found it fascinating that the way they decided to play that out again and kind of show some of their uh, character development, how much they had progressed over the you know few years that the Clone Wars took place. Yeah. Yep. And again, it's none of that stuff is by accident. Um, Filoni is a, a genius at, at doing that kind of thing. And uh, he does it so well. So, uh, as you said, you know, Maul was able to escape, uh, very much because Rex and Ahsoka, uh, were distracting the rest of the clone troopers who were very much focused on, on killing the Jedi who that they, uh, had been ordered to kill as well as at this point Rex, because they saw him as, uh, basically being a, a traitor. Uh, it was kind of funny how he had been promoted to commander, but, uh, but Jesse demoted him back down to captain, um, due to, due to that act of, uh, being a traitor, which kind of sets things up for him to again, announce himself as captain Rex when we meet him in rebels. So they're kind of had opened a plot loophole and then they fixed it within that same four episode arc. Yeah. He said, he even said, I never liked being a commander anyway. <laughs> exactly. So you know, it was perfect for him. Uh, you know, that the heartbreaking scene with him and Ahsoka, where you could tell he he knows he's going to have to fight his way through his brothers there. And, you know, it was just heart-wrenching, the tear that came out of his eye. I found fascinating the visuals of, you know, the, the clones with the helmets on versus clones with helmets off. And right. you know, you're trying to take away the humanity from them uh, by putting the helmets on them. And uh, I think they felt like they had to do that within this uh, when the clones uh, turn on Ahsoka. And yet, you know, the other interesting thing is once, and you, I think you referred to this a little bit more at the beginning, uh, Ahsoka, even though they're, they're trying to kill her, he, she tells Rex, put that thing on stun. We're not killing these people if we don't have to. And, right. and so she was trying to do her best. Now, not only to save herself to save Rex, but to also save all those clones, despite the fact that they all want to kill her at that moment. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to the point when order 66 first got, uh, got released when the clones first got released with order 66 and, you know, they had Ahsoka pinned on that hollow table and, uh, she's basically were a whirling dervish with their lightsabers blocking every bolt they fire at her. Her, um, but it was only a couple of seconds into that combat that she looked up and realized that she had a potential escape route above us. And she had the skill and the command of the force to be able to divert those blaster bolts up to create a hole in the ceiling for her to escape through. She could have easily deflected those laser bolts back at the clone troopers who were trying to kill her. Uh, but she chose to, to uh, not 
attack these people who she still had a, a connection with uh, based on all the battles that they'd fought and the loyalty that they had shown her. Uh, and she knew that despite the fact that they were trying to kill her, that was not their, that was not their choice. It was, uh, it was something that was being forced upon them. Yeah, she could tell right off the bat that, that something had changed. Something was wrong with them. It wasn't just that they had suddenly decided that uh, Ahsoka was bad. That there was something that, that wasn't didn't seem to be under their control. And I think the fact that Rex, you could see him fighting it to begin with, right. uh, maybe helped signal that to her. But uh, just you know, it's it's again, and I, it seems like we're just heaping praise on Ahsoka, or at least I am. Uh, but it's just a, you know one more thing that made she always had such sympathy, such empathy for all these characters around her, and I I, I really felt, you know, considering that she was such a you know, actually a lot of Star Wars fans did not like her to begin with because she was mm-hmm. snippy. She seemed like very arrogant for, for basically a youngling, actually too young. They would say she was too young to even be a Padawan at that point. Um, and for her to, to take her from that role to where, you know, she was getting a lot of backlash to where she's become one of the most important Star Wars characters within the entire universe, I, I think is just amazing character growth. No, totally. And, you know, it's, it's great because it was pretty clear to me that Yoda had saddled Anakin with this Padawan in hopes that it was going to curb some of his, uh, you know, more destructive impulses and, and kind of help teach him more constraint by the fact that he was having to teach a Padawan uh, constraint. So he and Ahsoka had a lot of the same personality traits. They were both impulsive. They were both prone to kind of uh, going off and, and doing things the way they wanted to do them. And it was just interesting to see that Ahsoka and Anakin for how how similar they were ended up at diametric opposite sides. You've got Anakin who was willing to betray everything that he had ever known in terms of, uh, you know, his Jedi family and, and the Jedi masters, etc., cetera. Uh, and to the point of killing younglings and Ahsoka on the other hand has put herself in a position where she would rather risk dying herself than to kill any of these people that she had uh, called her brothers and, and gone into battle with. Yeah, it's it again. Um, and I think, and I'll just go out and say it. You know, my first text to you after watching this episode was, you know, this is Ahsoka is the Jedi that the if there was ever to form a new Jedi Order that they should uh, basically base it on. Yeah. I mean, she's not a perfect uh, person. She's mm-hmm. not a perfect being. Um, and neither are any of the Jedi, yet they try to pretend that they were. And, you know, the arrogance behind it all and all of that, you know, she has attachments. She's not afraid to express anger at times. She's not, you know, she, yet when it's bottom line, uh, she is empathetic to those around her. Uh, she can feel uh, feels has a real good sense of right and, and wrong. And, um, you know, and bottom line is the hero that they should all try and be. Uh, you know, she even realized herself, like, look, I've been in war since I was a Padawan. I've, I've known nothing else, but we're not supposed to be warriors. You know, we're supposed to be keepers of the peace. We're not supposed to be out fighting these battles. And, you know, and that's really what the Jedi should be, in my, in my personal opinion. And that's why I think, like, you know, you could put a statue of her up at a, a, a Jedi training Academy and say, you know, look, you, I mean, obviously you can't be Ahsoka Tano, 
but you should try to be in many ways. Right. And, you know, that's the difficult thing about really any set of rules that, that are put together by any organization. It's hard to codify things like um, empathy toward, toward someone else. I mean, you can come up with a set of rules meant to keep people from giving into their darker impulses, but if all you're focusing on is what the rules are and not looking at why they were created, then you start to distance yourself from being able to, um, to be able to connect, I guess, with the very people in this case that the Jedi were supposed to be serving, which was not the Republic, not the, not the government of the the Galactic Republic, but the people of the Galactic Republic. And uh, I know we've talked a little bit about the fact that, you know, the Martez sisters arc, um, that was kind of the big takeaway there was the fact that the Jedi had kind of stopped seeing the people um, and really being able to connect with them in the in the process of them going about their duties to the Republic. And uh, that was never a situation that Ahsoka had really found herself in. She was always very much uh, aware of and tied into what was going on around her on a very personal level. Yeah, and that, that was a big part of that arc there was, you know, they, they mentioned, you know, we don't see Jedi down here. They don't come down here to, unless they're hunting for somebody, they don't come down here to just kind of protect us or uh, be, you know, keepers of the peace down there. Uh, you know, instead, they're, they're battling these doing these fights for the politicians. They basically become weapons of the politicians. Uh, and uh, that was, and we see that extend also within to this arc where uh, Ahsoka brings that up with Anakin, with Obi-Wan, like, oh yeah, yeah, you're doing this again for a political means. You're going to go fight this battle when these people need you over here on Mandalore. Uh, you know, and so you, you could tell that her, her, her her point of view has been shaped by some of these people that she she's met and the Martez sisters were a key to showing that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so, you know, really the only thing left uh, that I really want to talk about is that end sequence, that couple of minutes at the end of that last uh, episode where we see Ahsoka and Rex and, and it's incredible because there's not a word spoken. Um, but you know, Ahsoka is sitting there kind of looking over the graves of all these clones and Rex is putting back the shovel that they used to bury them all. Uh, and, and Ahsoka has that very poignant moment where, where she's looking down at, at her main lightsaber. Uh, and you could just see the struggle within her. She knew she had to leave it behind in order to sell the idea that she had been killed as a part of this crash. But, uh, you know, that was also her leaving a part of herself behind, uh, and, a, and a link to Anakin, uh, who had given her that saber back. So uh, as hard as it was for her to walk away from the Jedi Order the first time, it had to be just as hard, if not harder, uh, knowing that all of what she knew was gone. There was no option to even go back to that. And we did see, I think, throughout this four-episode arc that that she was still in her mind trying to figure out if she was going to go back to the Jedi. I mean... Uh, she had that conversation with uh, Mason and Yoda about the fact that, you know, not yet. Uh, and she had identified uh, with the Jedi and, and mentioned them as as us in one of the conversations early on in this four episode arc. So it was clearly still in her head that she may go back to that family uh, and that in that group where she felt uh, like she belonged. But um this time, you know, it was it was having to walk away from all of that and know that none of that was going to be something that she could she could go back to. Right. And he just, he just throw in all the loss. I mean, you know, she, it showed that although in uh, later on in rebels or whatever, it seems like she doesn't for sure know that 
what has become of Anakin. You could sense that she felt a little of that uh, within this episode when Order 66 uh, comes down or right before that. Um, and then, you know, the loss of, you know, she felt the loss of, uh, you know, what had become her family, essentially. One, the, the other Jedi that she had known, you know, so many of them had helped her along her path. And, and then right in front of her, uh, the loss of all the clones that had become the other part of her family that uh, had, you know, they had put on those helmets that they had painted uh, to, you know, basically to have her skin pigment on them. Uh, and, and she even, you know, we, we discussed it already, tried to save them even as they were trying to kill her to the end. But it, it just couldn't happen. The, the ship crashed. Uh, they all perished. Uh, it's, it's just a devastating moment in so many regards for her. Yeah. And the part of this episode really, you know, I, I thought they were going to leave it there. Uh, maybe a final goodbye between her and Rex, but instead they go and jump forward in time. And it's, it's kind of an indeterminate amount of time, but it's certainly uh, within the arc where the galactic empire had, had established itself. And you've got, you know, snow troopers active on the planet. You've got stormtroopers there. You see a shuttle descending and lo and behold, we get to see Darth Vader uh, in his full armor for the first time within you know the clone wars animation at least uh and that it was incredibly powerful my son looked at me and was like is is this still animated or is this like live action uh because the the you know the the visuals were that stunning uh and interestingly enough as as uh, vader is sitting there staring at the the graves of the troopers with the the lightsaber that he finds in the snow in his hands uh you can actually see one of his eyes through the the yeah. uh the eyepiece there which i thought was kind of a cool touch he looks up he sees the moray flying overhead and you just get that peek into his human eye just that little glimpse of his humanity that still exists within this creature that has become Darth Vader. Um, just such a poignant moment. And that's where, well, I mean, I, I was in tears a few times throughout the episode, but that one broke me down completely. Yeah. That little split moment when you see the moray and you see his eye, it's, it's, it's heart-wrenching. It really is. Yeah. And for anyone who's not familiar with who uh, Morai is, that's the, uh, the convoy, the space owl, if you will, uh, that was often seen with Ahsoka uh, quite a bit in Rebels um, and kind of went back to the, the Mortis arc within the Clone Wars um, where there was the father, the son, and the daughter, and, and the daughter had basically sacrificed herself to save Ahsoka, um, and she had a convoy uh, that was associated with her as well. So that convoy then was pretty much forever after seen with uh, with Ahsoka within Clone Wars and Rebels, um, if you did see it. So, uh, you know, it was definitely a hint to Vader that Ahsoka may still be alive. I don't know that he was in a position where he could really uh, – really understand that at that point, uh, having given into his hate. And, you know, we know from some of the other books that, uh, that Vader appears in, uh, that he is very much dismissive of his time as that Jedi. Uh, so, uh, it was, it was just an incredible scene to end this, this, uh, season seven and this arc on. Powerful, powerful. I immediately had to go from there and go into Star Wars Rebels because I needed a little extra closure on that moment. <laughs> and um, One, I would suggest if you've watched the Clone Wars, one, if you haven't watched the Clone Wars, what are you doing listening to us? Go watch the Clone <laughs> Wars. Uh, again, uh, we've got to continue on where we mentioned you need to watch the Clone Wars. Uh, go watch the Clone Wars. 
then go watch Star Wars Rebels. And if you want to just take a moment uh, once you finish that arc or go rewatch that arc, and if you don't want to sit uh, through the entire series of Rebels, I would just say uh, go to season two. Uh, there's a little two-episode arc. Uh, it starts with an episode called The Lost Commanders and finishes with uh, Relics of the Old Republic. Uh, it was. I went to that immediately afterwards, and it was extremely cathartic for me. Um, I highly, highly uh, recommend it for you. If you've seen Rebels before, if you haven't seen Rebels, really, you should just watch the series start to finish. But uh, even if not, if you just want to get a couple episodes, uh, go check those ones out immediately after you watch this finishing arc of The Clone Wars. Here, here. I, I could not agree more. Uh, and that, that for me is really going to wrap it, uh, for the, the discussion on this arc. I, I wish I could forget it all and go back and watch it all over again because it was just that much fun, uh, to watch, but I've seen all of them multiple times now and, and they hold up even on rewatches. So, uh, but you know, certainly understanding where Ahsoka goes from there, go, go like Tom said, go watch rebels, um, maybe read the Ahsoka book, although we know that at least parts of that are, are no longer going to be part of canon. Uh, but going back and rewatching this arc after you see a little bit more of who she becomes down the road uh, is really informative in terms of, uh, of how her character formed the way that it did. And uh, I would certainly recommend it to anyone. So uh, Tom, Thank you, as always, for joining me. Uh, I think I'm going to hit up just a couple of news items if you want to stick on for that. Absolutely. I'm yeah. Here. Yeah. So I think the two big things that have come out in the last couple of weeks, uh, first, the the conversation that Taika Waititi is uh, likely going to be getting a uh, directing role for an upcoming Star Wars film that has yet to be named or described. Uh, but uh, I know that uh, Taika certainly has, has done some great work, uh, both with the Marvel film universe and some of the Thor uh, films, as well as in the Mandalorian. So I know there's a lot of excitement out there for him to uh, give a film a try. Yeah, and we were talking about this again off air just before we, we came on and started recording this episode. I was excited for Taika to come on, one, because I love... Uh, the work that he's done. I find him an interesting director, an interesting storyteller, but also the fact that he's been working so closely with Dave Filoni on The Mandalorian. I think that uh, anybody who, who can kind of have things to bounce off Dave Filoni, because I think that he's the other guy who's telling so much, the best story work right now within Star Wars is Dave Filoni. And so I think that the fact that that has to have probably rubbed off at least a little bit on Taika Waititi, uh, I think bodes well for whatever uh, story he approaches uh, as with these, uh, as these films come out. Yeah. And there's also, uh, I believe it's, uh, Christy Wilson Cairns who is going to be joining, uh, Tycho and co-writing that film as well, which is going to be interesting. Um, She's only the second woman to ever co-write a Star Wars film with Leah Brackett from Empire Strikes Back uh, almost 40 years ago, almost exactly 40 years ago, um, taking on that that task before she unfortunately passed and, and that task passed on to Lawrence Kasdan. So um, definitely a rarefied air there for the Star Wars universe. Yeah, uh, I just it bodes well. And it's also just nice to have something kind of at least somewhat firmly in place. In place now, we know we've seen over the past several years. Okay, this person is scheduled to direct. This person is scheduled to write. Suddenly, that has changed at some point. So you always have to take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. But I feel good about the people that they put in this position. And uh, like I said, we we 
although they've alluded to, okay, we have dates for these movies that are coming up. We have had no other real details, just, you know, maybe this, maybe that. So it's kind of good to finally have uh, some names in place. Yeah. Uh, they also announced that uh, there's going to be a new Star Wars series on Disney Plus, headed up by Leslie Headland, uh, who was uh, co-creator and the showrunner for Netflix's Russian Doll. Uh, they're saying it's going to be a female-centric show that takes place in a different part of the timeline than what we've seen in some of these other projects so uh it would be awesome if it was like satil sean and the the uh, old republic but i don't think that's going to be the case mm, yeah uh, i don't know where we're going there you know they have a lot of stuff riding on the high republic which is coming out here the novels the comics a bunch of stuff is coming out here uh very soon i don't know if that's kind of going to tie into that but uh, again, more Star Wars is always a good thing. Yeah, and then there's also been, it just seems like every day they're announcing a new uh, individual who's going to be part of The Mandalorian Season 2. We've already had the the rumors about a live-action uh, Ahsoka taking part in that, uh, but uh, also uh, the actor that played uh, Jango Fett, uh, Tamara Morrison, yeah. is going to be there, and they just had recently, I believe it was today maybe, that they announced that uh, Katie Sackhoff is potentially going to be showing up to play Bo-Katan. Uh, so that ties in pretty nicely with the discussion we just had. Uh, and she is a dead ringer for Bo-Katan. So it should work out very nicely if that turns out to be the case. Uh, but I think we're going to have to just start talking about who's not going to be in season two. Yeah. Hmm. It's going to be fascinating who's going to be there, who's not. I, I'm, I'm fascinating that if, if Bo-Katan comes into this because she is a Mandalorian, I'm still not convinced that the Mandalorian is, well, we know that he's not really a Mandalorian, but I'm convinced that a lot of the Mandalorians aren't really Mandalorians that more they're just kind of following that lore, following, you know, this is the way, the way. Um, so I'm, I'm going to be interested to see if that's kind of, going to play a part in all of this. Yeah, I I think that uh, you're probably onto something there. I think that with the, the Purge, I would see the Galactic Empire doing a pretty good job of wiping out as many of the Mandalorians as they could, and uh, at least the true-blooded Mandalorians, sons and daughters of Mandalore. But uh, like you said, I think this is more uh, more Mandalorians in the sense that they follow uh, you know that code, that way of life, uh, and, and that's really the change with what we're looking at for Mandalorians kind of post Return of the Jedi. I'm excited. And then we just, uh, I saw Bob Chapek, who's the new CEO of Disney on a CNBC yesterday. And he came on and said, hey, the Mandalorian's on schedule. So it looks like it's going to be out as uh, determined previously. So uh, that's that's good news. That is great news. And uh, so uh, I think that's going to wrap it for today for uh, the Holonet News. Tom, if you want to go ahead and let everyone know where they can find you, uh, you definitely had a, a very cool episode that you guys just dropped on Monday on top of your best Disney lounges uh, that you had done on Sunday. So uh, why don't you let everyone know where they can find that if uh, if they're into all things Disney. Well, thank you, Rob. And of course, it's always a pleasure being on the Jedi Temple Archives podcast. As for our show, yes, we had an interesting week. We did our typical kind of fun informational show on Sunday where we basically just kind of went through and counted down our five favorite Disney lounges and you know maybe some memories that some of those may have happened to have 
uh, involve Rob and his lovely wife, Kim, in those. Uh, and, but uh, we also uh, were lucky enough to be able to uh, find uh, or, or contact uh, a former uh, executive vice president at the Walt Disney World Resort by the name of Lee Cockrell, uh, who was actually in that job during 9-11. So he knows a little bit of having to uh, close the parks, reopen the parks, even when the guests you know, may have had a little bit of fear about going back to uh, a Disney park. Uh, so he had some incredible insight on what Disney is going through now and uh, what they might have to do through, uh, go through to reopen. And so those were our, our last couple episodes that uh, just came out. If you want to find them, you can find us on our own website, HyperionAdventuresPodcast.com, as well as virtually everywhere uh, you get a podcast. And if you want to follow us on social media, we are on Twitter at Hyperion Podcast. Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest at Hyperion Adventures Podcast. Awesome. Yeah. And I definitely recommend if you are interested in Disney, Marvel, Star Wars. I mean, we've done a number of Star Wars episodes out there on uh, Hyperion as well, uh, including some uh, fun ones here recently uh, with the guys from Conversations. Tom had us on for their 100th anniversary or their 100th episode show. Uh, and we had a lot of fun. I think we're still laughing from that. So uh, good times were had by all. Certainly, if uh, you want to reach out to us, you can reach Reach us at jtapodcast.com if you want to find our episodes or on your favorite podcatcher. You can email us at jtapodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can leave a voicemail for us if you'd like to weigh in on anything regarding the show or uh, leave some thoughts for an upcoming show. And that number is 201-746-5827, uh, which is JTAP. And you can find us on social media at JTA Podcast. And we are also, as of May the 4th, uh, officially part of the Red 5 Network, which is a group of podcasts that uh, we've all decided to get together. We collaborate together. We uh, kind of visit each other's shows and talk Star Wars in all ways, shapes, and forms. Uh, and you can find that website at red5network.com, number five, uh, as well as uh, YouTube channel and uh, out on the socials as well. So definitely check them out. Look at uh, a number of our other member shows. Uh, they've got a lot of great content out there and uh, we're always having a good time with our fellow uh, squad mates in red five. So uh, that'll do it for this week. Thank you guys for listening. Hopefully you're all staying safe and healthy and may the force be with you. Thank you.